Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a talk on fentanyl. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Fentanyl is killing 78,000 people a year, or over 200 people a day. Let me say that again. 200 people a day. That is wartime statistics. The fentanyl I used in the hospital is not the problem. The problem is illicit fentanyl coming from China and Mexico and counterfeit pills and powder that is deadly. Families Against Fentanyl reports that fentanyl continues to be the leading cause of death among Americans aged 18 to 45 in 2021. That's according to data they analyzed from the CDC. Fentanyl is killing more people than COVID, than car accidents or suicides in this age group. And what can be more alarming What can be more alarming is babies who die of fentanyl. Babies. They didn't choose to use drugs or have an addiction. The alarming statistics is about babies and children. Death in infants less than one years old increased fourfold in the past two years. Did they overdose or were they poisoned, killed, or murdered? They did not have a substance use disorder. So what's going on? And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Levin. Thank you for the opportunity to ask your guest a question. This is Navy Commander Ron Cuff. I'm retired. I'm also the co-founder of Safe Launch, an addiction prevention initiative based in Santa Barbara, California. My question is this. Given the fact that adolescent males are notoriously fearless, that's why we like them in the military, given the fact that they're notoriously fearless, do you think that it actually helps to tell them about deaths caused by drugs and addiction. Thank you. Thank you, Ron, for your question, and thank you for the amazing work you do with Safe Launch. You are dedicated to preventing 
deaths to preventing fentanyl use to saving children's lives through important prevention programs with youth, such as the one with Safe Launch. And you want action. You don't want just talk about prevention. You want action. And that's what we're going to bring you here. Lights, camera, action with Dominique Tierno. Dominique produced the documentary Dead on Arrival, shown to millions of people in all 50 states and in Latin America. It features parents telling the story of how their children died of fentanyl because of a mistake. Dominique aims to bring light to the darkness through raw and bold storytelling. And to learn more about Dominique Tierno and watch Dead on Arrival, check out the High Truth show notes. Dominique Tierno, welcome to High Truth. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lab. Yeah, I'm so excited. I, I really was impacted by your movie, uh, Dead on Arrival, and you have a passion for the camera. So can you tell us about the beginnings of making movies for you? Yeah, the beginning, of, well, <laughs> I wouldn't call movies. It started with uh, YouTube. YouTube was like a new popular thing when I was, I don't know, nine or 10. I was going into middle school. And at the time, the entry level camera was a called a flip camera. And it was basically this brick with the stop and start button. And then it'll zoom out, zoom in. And I begged my dad to get me one. I wanted to make YouTube videos, and he did. He, well, he got me like three of them because I I would break them over and over again from filming stuff with my friends. And and I knew in middle school as a result of making these little YouTube videos that this was going to be something big, something I could maybe do, maybe not necessarily for a career, but certainly do professionally. And that passion just kind of grew and grew as I went through high school and took film classes and got my first DSLR camera. And to keep it brief, when I was 17, graduating high school, that's when I was finally asked to make a documentary film for youth drug prevention specifically. So I did my first film, The Other Side, at age 17, right after I graduated high school. And man, the drug world and situation we're in is a whole lot different now than it was when I started about 10 years ago. How did that come about? Why? How did they say, hey, make us a movie about drug prevention? What, what instigated that? So I, I kind of skipped over just the years I spent um, of kind of being a freelancer, I guess you will. I was young, 13, 14, 15, but I'd, I'd make these business cards advertising myself as a photographer or videographer. And so I'd do family portraits or I'd do um, sports scholarship videos for athletes who were trying to get, you know, full rides or something or play on college teams or get scouted. I would do little advertisements for local businesses and things. And as I started to take these film classes in high school, uh, I just, I noticed, all right, I've been doing these kind of this videography work. Now I want to make like a real film or a movie. And I didn't ask for the opportunity. Uh, I didn't go around searching for it. It really came to me. There were some kids who had graduated a few years before me at my same high school uh, who were actually doing it for a living at that point. And a mom named Christine, uh, she's now named Christine Wood, but she was a local to the area that I grew up in. And she had made a documentary called Overtaken, which was basically a bunch of previous addicts who had had crazy life stories who just sat down on camera and, and basically tried to scare kids out of using drugs, which was very effective. Um, she wanted to do another film and she had asked 
these people who had graduated a few years before me, if, if, if they knew any young filmmaker in this program I was in, uh, who would be willing to help her make her next project. And that was the other side film that I did at 17. It's funny. She actually, <laughs> you talk about weed a lot. So she called me at like 10 AM on a Saturday morning and I was not high or, or by any means, but I, I, she woke me up on the phone and I'm this 17 year old kid. And I'm like, see this number. I'm like, I think it's my mom at work or something. Oh, and she's like, uh, is this Tommy here? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> and she asked me like, if I wanted to make this film project on the spot, she never met me before. And then when she met me in person, she goes, Oh, thank God. I thought you were a total stoner. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that'd be pretty funny. Yeah, yeah it was just groggy. Well, what a amazing entrepreneur you are just from a young age. Because uh, I look at you and you still look like a kid. Um, so, but that, that's wonderful. You know, one thing I noticed on your website that I, I admire because I take, I think it takes honesty and bravery to do. And that's that you glorify God in your work. So how does your faith guide your work? Um, wow, I love that you're asking this. Cool. So it guides my work in the sense that I have, and I could go over after that point and 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 where I've taken this film business, I guess. I, I do social media and stuff. I lived in LA for three years and worked with a lot of celebrities and things. And I just I was longing for some sort of purpose or fulfillment with this gift that I know God had given me since I was a kid. And I went to LA and I worked with all these brands and celebrities that I thought were really cool growing up. And once I got there and I was doing this kind of work, I was like, why is this not, you know, doing it for me? And so it took me a long time of doing things myself or my own way or what I thought would be cool to do to finally circle back and say, all right, God, what do you want me to do with this talent that you created me with? And he has led me back to the passion I had as a kid, which was, I want you to make films and tell stories that are going to change people's lives, change people's hearts, and ultimately change the world. And so I've started with drug prevention. Uh, my next film will be about mental health and the effects of social media and things on youth. Um, and we're just going to keep going from there. I just kind of stopped looking to what I thought was cool before and started asking God, all right, what do you want me to do with this? And just been obedient since then. Really. And you know, he's answering back when you feel that fulfillment, that you have that purpose. Right. I mean, I've... <laughs> I have worked on a lot cooler film sets than the set I had for Dead on Arrival. Dead on Arrival was me here in Idaho. We flew out those four parents who you see in the film. I rented an Airbnb, moved around all the furniture in the house, and me and my wife sat with a camera and a couple lights and filmed their stories. And, and then I sat in a dark office for a month and, and put it together in a rural area of Idaho. <laughs> so. Wow. That was a lot different than what I, you know, maneuvered my way into in LA, where I was in Hollywood Hills mansions filming these events and these celebrities and stuff, um, not getting that fulfillment there. And yet sitting in that dark room making Dead on Arrival, I just, I felt that purpose. I felt that like anointing, if you will, on it, that this was going to be something big, even though it didn't look big from the outside. 
Dead on Arrival has now been distributed to all 50 states, even Latin American countries. It's been dubbed in Spanish. And I know that I know that I know that it's saving kids' lives every day because it's being shown to thousands and thousands of kids all over the country. And so you're right in that sense. Yeah. That's so Ron Cuff does prevention work um, with Safe Launch. And he asks, does it really work to show a movie like Dead on Arrival about kids who overdose, who die? Does that make an impact in preventing kids from using drugs? I think it does in this. Well, I, I'll tell you, it overtaken worked for me. And I go back to that story about Christine, because that's the film I saw in high school. Well, one of the many that I saw where I actually at the end of the assembly went, Okay, I think I might need to listen to this because it scared me. So you were a kid and you were affected by other kids dying from drugs. Yeah, and 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 stories of parents who had lost kids cuz and that's what I think is a huge thing in Don't Arrival is kids most of which some do not have great connections with their parents which we could talk about but many see parents crying and think oh my gosh, I would never want to do that to my family. I would never want to make my dad cry or my mom cry like that. Uh, I need to be careful with this stuff. And I, I do believe that message works for them. I, I, As far as kids dying, you have to do it a certain way because there is this invincibility um, thought kind of that comes to young people. Where, Other people die, it won't happen to me. Yes, yeah. But I think when they see that emotion and they see the relatability of, the family and the maybe the bedroom they grew up in and wow that house looks like my house oh wow he didn't seem like a bad kid oh my gosh that's kind of like my mom how my mom talks about me the more you can establish that connection and say no this is real this is relatable i think they do listen and you mentioned it does it work with kids who don't have a good relationship with their parents you know, I was having a conversation with a lady who does a lot of intervention stuff for like at risk or underprivileged youth. And, and she shows the film and she said, you know, for some of the kids in the room, I can tell it really, really hit them hard. And some are crying and stuff. And then others are kind of sitting there a little awkward because they go, wow, well, that guy's dad. I wish I had a mom like that. Exactly. And it, and that hit me after I made the film because I actually grew up in an interesting family situation with a lot of divorce and moving around. And I had a few different stepdads and stuff. So I can, in a, in a sense, relate to that feeling of not having like the perfect, you know, family or household or whatever. Um, and so I, I kind of sit back and go, man, how do I reach those kids? How do I let them know? Well, maybe it's not your mom or your dad, but I care about you. I wouldn't want to see you go. Your friends wouldn't want to see you go. Uh, your teachers, your coaches, or, you know, there's someone there who would who would feel that way if they were to make that kind of a decision. So. Wow. Um, about Dead and Arrival, how did you come to making that movie? Did Were you approached or is it something you wanted to do? It was the same. So Christine has produced all the films since the first one that I did. She basically her and I were talking in 2019 about doing something on fentanyl because we had started to notice the numbers um skyrocketing and and we were like all right we need to put out something up on this because our films prior to that had been more about you know 
not as serious in nature. Someone needed to sound the alarm about this fentanyl issue, and no, and I no one I saw had. And so I'm like, all right, what are we gonna do? She had sent me an article. Um, Amy, the first mother in the film, her son Alex had died in Aliso Viejo, which I had lived in for quite a while as a kid. Uh, 14 years old, ordered a pill off the of Snapchat and was found dead by his mom in his bedroom the next morning now this was a kid where in the article i'm looking at he's watching cartoons on the couch with his sister he's he looks like this tiny little boy and i'm going this is crazy you know and i'm not i can remember being that age and i look back and go i never would have done that i never would have thought to do that at that age i mean i cigarettes were like a huge like whoa that kid smokes cigarettes you know at like 11 12 13 I, I just didn't I did not think that that was like going to be a common thing and so when she sent me that story I'm like this is really powerful but I don't know if it's really relatable like is that just an extreme case and that was kind of my mistake at the time because about three to six months later doing research I just started seeing more and more and more and more young teens dying from fentanyl poisoning the same way ordering a pill off of snapchat you know or social media and some guy showing up to their house behind their parents back and slipping them a pill and their parents finding them the same way in their bedroom and i'm like all right i guess this is what it is now we need to tell this story like yesterday you know and so we ended up reaching out directly to amy who also was working with the other parents in the film and uh, we just told their story exactly how it is. I didn't realize early on that this is actually what was happening. And I think many people still don't, which is why we made the film. Yeah. yeah and I, I agree with you. I think people say, oh, well, those are drugs. Those are for people who are addicts. This is not, you know, a lot of the kids, uh, the kids that you display in the movie were not addicts. They were did not have a substance disorder. They just made a mistake. Right. And that mistake shouldn't cost them their life. You know, right. I, that's not fair. I tell this story quite a bit. Um, I bought a pill, you know, I had as a result of some of the stuff I was going through in my childhood and just mental health issues and things that I had was dealing with in high school. I had a lot of bad anxiety and depression and I tried to go into therapy and they tried to put me on Prozac and Zoloft and it made me feel like a zombie. And I was like, I am 15. I do not need to be on meds. You know, I just, I knew that, but I knew that sometimes I would have a panic attack or something that was just too much. And so they gave me Xanax as like a fire extinguisher. They would say, they'd be like, all right, if it gets really bad, you're having a panic attack, take half of this, right? And it'll calm you down. And I've maybe taken 10 in my life, maybe. Um, I don't use it anymore. And been that's no longer an issue for me. But at the time as a teen and in college, I remember asking a couple of friends, hey, do you know anyone who has the Xanax? And so here I was, this kid, athlete, you know, church, good grades. I'm at Penn State going to business school. Never, not a big partier whatsoever, just dealing with some mental health issues, asking, you know, kind of desperately just for a half of a Xanax so I could calm down on a plane ride or whatever it was. And that could have been a fake Xanax like it is now, you know, 
white pill binder stamped Xanax, just fentanyl. And that could have been it. You know, there's a, that girl in our film who took half a pill, but that pill had enough fentanyl to kill four or five grown men. And I just look back and go, oh my gosh, thank you, God, I dodged that. You know, but that could have been me, which is crazy to think. I've not never been a drug user, you know, or party or anything like that. Uh, but these are the kids who are unfortunately making that mistake a lot of times out of desperation for help. And, um, yeah, one pill and game over. And right. And that's just to 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 help calm some anxiety. Wow. It's not even for misuse. But I, I notice in the movie, you're very careful in the words that are used by the parents. Um, by the way, how did you meet the parents? How did I they come to you? I, I, I mean, we met on a Zoom call, kind of like this. And then next thing you know, I, they're in Idaho, where I am, and we're all meeting at this Airbnb I reserved. Did they know each other? Did the parents know each other? Yeah. So when we reached out to Amy, she had already by the time we reached out, formed this organization between those four parents, three of which are still part of the organization called Void. And they go around collectively. Now they show this film everywhere. But prior to that, they had started this organization to raise awareness about, it stands for Victims of Illicit Drugs. So that's right. there. And then I noticed they were very capable to say their kids didn't overdose, that their kids were poisoned or killed or murdered. And that was intentional. It was, yeah. And and they asked me, please don't use that word. Um, when it comes to this, and I go, and I had to think about it, I go, okay, you know, why is that? And I and I I mean, practically we can look at it and you see in the film that, you know, this much fentanyl would kill you and I, right, you know, right now if we split it. And so you look at that and go, Well, how do you overdose on something like that? You know what I mean? Like as as if there's a safe dose which there is in medical settings and things like that but on the street it's like no there's no safety <laughs> so so you look at it that way and then you also think well they didn't overdose because they didn't know they were taking that you're right so it's like if i'm gonna go pop a bunch of real percocet or something i can overdose and take too many pills but they think they're taking a percocet or a xanax and actually getting fentanyl this is not a drug overdose. It's a poisoning. It's a killing because there's deception involved. Right. And, um, and so it's murder. It is. Yeah. And, and, and we're starting to finally see law enforcement recognize it um, that way and investigate these, these uh, instances as, as homicides and not as typical overdose cases where they just show up and say, Hey, your kid shouldn't have been using drugs. Sorry. You know, right. And and it's it's nice when law enforcement and I know we do here in San Diego look at each one of those deaths as a potential homicide scene, um, and I know across the country we don't have that yet, um, and and parents are left well what what happened to my kid? Mm-hmm. Um, your movie is really emotional. I, I mean I've watched it several times and preparing to to meet you in person, and each time it's just heart wrenching. And watching a parent's grief, I think we said this, uh, affects parents, I'm sure. But uh, the question is, does it affect the kids? And is that the reaction you're going for? Yeah, I want kids to, and you know, if I would have been able to do the film exactly 
my way, I guess, I would have actually went to the houses of and shown their bedrooms and shown more footage of them and more pictures of them so that kids could see, oh, that looks just like my friend or that looks just like my room because they don't, I think once they can relate, then they understand. But I, I tried to make it as relatable as possible as I could so that they could see their parent in those parents. And when they do, it works. And I know this because I get tons of reports of teachers saying kids are walking back to class crying looking at their friends saying um i'll never use a drug and actually being serious i get comments on youtube and messages on instagram from kids saying hey this was shown in my health class today it really really affected me and and you know and i'm decided that i'm not going to use drugs because of this film so i know it's working is it working for all of them no i don't think anything um any film would necessarily um but I think it's a lot more effective than what's what I saw growing up and what's out there otherwise. So how how is your you mentioned that your movie is being used as, in schools as in prevention program? Can you ex- elaborate on that? Like, are are they showing it as part of a curriculum? So it started. I mean, I just put the film out free of copyright, and we gave it to the parents, and we said, "Hey, let's get this in as many schools as possible." So there's no charge to use it. I'll send you the download link. I want no barrier to a school saying, "Oh, well, we can't afford it, or we can't stream it on YouTube." Here's the file. Just press play, and so that's what's happened. And and just I think by the nature of people really appreciating the film and it working. It's just been shared and shared and shared and shared. I know the parents who are in the film have flown around the country doing these assemblies themselves. And they've actually kind of rewired their organization to, I would say, 90 to 95% of what they do now is literally just share and promote Dead on Arrival and do those assemblies. Uh, Natural High, which is an, uh, a nonprofit organization in San Diego as well, founded by John Sunt, he took the film and distributed it to their 28,000 schools um, in all 50 states across the country as well. And so it's just been blasted to as many schools as we possibly can. What the schools do with it is kind of up to them. The most common I've seen is assemblies, 30-minute assembly where they'll bring, you know, a bunch of different classrooms in to watch it, answer some questions, and then maybe another wave of kids will come in. Um, we don't have any curriculum necessarily that I've put out with the film itself. Did, did the parents do any evaluation? I just did a podcast with someone that evaluates very critically any prevention program with randomized control. People who've watched this, uh, kids who've watched a movie, kids who haven't watched a movie, what are their, what do they say about um, drug use initiation? I would um, love to know, Yeah. I wonder if the parents have done any of that. And one of the parents, uh, Jaime Puerta, was on um, this uh, podcast on high truths, and uh, and that inspired me to 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 go and and find you. And I'm so excited that you agreed to come and talk to us. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned also in the movie the whole Russian roulette idea that when you were I was laughing because you said when you were a kid because you look like a kid to me right now but when you were a kid you told kids you know to be careful now you tell them something different yeah so the first film we did was we interviewed a bunch of kids who had decided not to use drugs 
and instead followed their passion and things. And so we had a, a USC quarterback, we had a fashion model, we had a singer and all that. And so we followed their success stories and they attributed a lot of their success to not getting caught up in addiction or drugs or partying and things. And it that film still works. I mean, the message is is good. The issue is, and kind of what we were touching on is, I was one of those kids who followed my passion, but I still made some of those, you know, bad decisions along the way. And those little, you know, decisions are enough to end their life now. And so the message has changed from, hey, it's not just follow your passion and don't become addicted to a drug or don't party a lot. It's really heavily considered never, ever, ever even trying anything one time because it only takes one time now. And there is so much deception now that wasn't there before. Um, that that uh, the risk, like we're saying with Russian roulette, is not worth the chance, uh, you know, that you take. Right. So, yeah. You you when you make a movie, you spend a lot of time with the characters and editing in your dark little room in Idaho. You were saying seeing the same people and their voices again and again and again. You become intimate with those characters, and so how did it change you? How did producing Dead on Arrival affect you? Well, the first thing that kind of comes to my heart is I'm going to be a dad in a couple of months here. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And that has, watching Jaime and Matt and Steve, I mean, all three of them, particularly like, and just seeing a father cry. And there's been some other films I've done where I've watched fathers cry. And my dad didn't cry much growing up but it's i know it takes a lot sometimes to get a father but i've seen fathers sobbing and just to i don't understand that love yet firsthand i will soon but it has prepared my heart i think to um to just be ready to know what that love is like and and i can't imagine yet what it's what their loss is like but it changed me in a sense of it just it let me know like, all right, you know, you don't get this yet, but you're going to. And I think when I do, it'll have even more of an, an impact on me. Um, as far as onset, I was talking about this in, a, in another podcast I did recently. I kind of have this, maybe you're a doctor, maybe you can help me explain why this happens. But I have this weird numbness that happens when I'm filming these things and my wife she she's the opposite she's she's there to be that support for the parents who are crying and we'll we'll do takes and stuff and we'll cut and she's running over and hugging them and crying with them and I'm focusing on the camera the lighting what they're saying right because I I'm I gotta get my shot I gotta get the story because I know the mission that I'm on you know and so on set, they're crying and they're telling the story. And I'm, it sounds bad, but I'm sometimes smiling in like internally because I'm I'm joyful of what we're gonna do with this, you know, and like how it's gonna change hearts and the impact it's gonna bring. It's not that I'm not feeling for them, I am, but we can't change that now. It's past, you know, and it's there'd be in essence i feel like there's no use in me getting sad about what they went through i'm i have to remain joyful and excited and just uh confident about what we're doing 
So I have, I say, so I'm an emergency physician and I deal with, you know, horrible things in the emergency department. But I think what you're, what you're expressing is what I, what I do. Same thing is while you're doing CPR or doing an intubation, doing an intervention, you don't have time for emotion. You, you won't do a job right. You won't be a good film director if you're caught up in that person's emotion. You have a different mission, right? So I also, while I am working, um, I, I I can't, you know, that that's tuned out. I got a job to do and kind of similar to what you're saying when you said like, oh, I got this really good shot and it's like, oh, got a pulse back, you know? It's like, of course, we're not happy that this person coded and may have died. We're happy that, you know, you know, this intubation went well or this, we got a pulse back or, you know, we're, we're excited about um, the job that we're doing. Um, and, you know, you could cry later, but you can't cry while you're doing your, your work. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. That's probably the best analogy that's helped me realize that I'm not like some weird, um, I don't know. No, you got, you're not heartless. You have that you yeah. have to be that way. If you, and it's nice that you have someone who can do that for you. So when I'm in the middle of a code, I, I have to be the doctor, but I like call the chaplain because they can comfort the family and other people who, who need help, but I don't have time for, I can't do that. Wow. Okay. That's exactly what it feels like. It's like my wife's the chaplain in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Yeah. I imagine, yeah. Someone comes in with a crazy car accident and then Dr. Lev, Dr. Lev. And you're just like, what, what happened to that? You know, and you're just like, yeah. They did what? It's it's actually harder for me. Like I see in real life a lot worse things, but if I watch something on TV, then I can be emotional about it. That's actually how I don't want to watch that. It's like, I got enough of that. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely sensitive. Yeah, you turn on the right, you know, sad movie or something, or I'll be the first one to grab the tissue box. But for some reason, like you're saying in the moment, I'm. No, you can't because you have a job to do. You have your focus that you and you have a job. And what's good for you, like, oh, that was showing real good emotion. That doesn't mean that you lack empathy. That means that you're going to be able to display that emotion in your in the movie that you're making. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) You're good. You're normal. (laughs) Um. So yes, it's very impactful. So let's change our conversation a little bit about drugs. You talk in your movie about one choice, um, kids to choose not to use drugs. I think that's amazing. You have one choice. And and that's some, that was kind of like the punchline of, of the movie. Um, my question is, is that a reasonable goal? You've gone through it. You've been a kid. Your brain has just finished growing just now. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, well, I say it's one choice is all it takes. And so that's what I want them to know. Do I, are they going to make every choice right? No. I think that's unreasonable to assume it was, at least it was for me. Um, I think if they are educated and know the potential costs, they are more likely to make the right choice. I think many will try different things. And a lot of times it won't be fentanyl. Um, It won't be deadly. But the more evidence I can show them, 
that it might, I think the greater chance we have at them making those really important choices where it would be life or death. Pills, particularly. I think it is reasonable to convince kids to never take a pill from other than from a, some it being prescribed to them. I don't think I don't think we're like I don't think that's an unreasonable goal. Um, that would avoid a lot of fentanyl deaths right there. Cocaine, marijuana, which it's you probably know more than I do about how if it's really being found in marijuana or not um, on the street. Oh, interesting that you bring that up. That is the hot topic of the day of, of I've seen patients who swear they only use marijuana and yet I had to revive them with naloxone and their urine tested positive for fentanyl and they swear they don't use fentanyl. And I've heard now parents say the same thing. My kid doesn't use fentanyl. It was just weed. It was just weed. Um, the data that we have from where we could get data, how do we find this out? We can get data from sh sheriff seizures. They take drugs and they test it. So uh, in San Diego, California, we haven't found any marijuana products that are laced or have fentanyl in them. Definitely a lot of people who've died with both drugs together. And so what I'm thinking, and this hasn't been proven yet, but this is my theory, is that if you use a bong that someone else had fentanyl in it and there's only fentanyl residue, that's actually the more concentrated fentanyl. And then you put your weed in there and smoke it, and then you could die. And see, that's where I go, okay, those are kind of hard to stop because kids just think weed is nothing wrong with weed. And Coke, I mean, I was in college not long ago. You see young girls like where you would, they look so innocent and they're asking for a Coke and going to the bathroom and you're like, really? You know, I'm just... And, and those are the ones where they start putting fentanyl on those things, or like you're saying, in the uh, devices or whatever they use to smoke other things. Like, that's where I'm, you know, because am I going to convince them to never do any drugs? I can, some, but. And, th and that's what's right. So I actually think one choice is a goal that you should stick to, um, because you will get a percentage of the population, it'll never be 100%, that will hear it. And you'll get a percentage of the population that they will at least delay for a few years their drug use. And by that, you could save thousands of kids. Yeah. Not not 100%. I think if you start your premise that, well, all kids are going to use a drug, what's the point? Just choose them less, you have more kids dying and more kids mm -hmm. using. But if you start at a young age with your one-choice goal, um, I think you'll have a better long-term. And starting younger too. Yeah. I mean, getting that conviction in their heart, like at 12, at 11, at 10, you know. Right. The age of onset of marijuana use is 13. Right. Or 12. And every person, every person I have met who overdosed on fentanyl that lives through it to talk to me about it started the first drug that they ever used was marijuana at a young age. All of them. Not everybody who uses marijuana dies of fentanyl, but almost everyone who dies of fentanyl at one point in their life used marijuana. Mm. Wow. 
I believe it. I mean, yeah. people say, oh, it's the gateway drug. It is. It is. <laughs> it it is. is. Yeah. So families, this is this will shock you. Families Against Fentanyl, um, the organization that's sponsoring this podcast, looks at the CDC data and they analyze fentanyl fatalities amongst children. And they noticed that children is the most highest ranking group of any other age group in fentanyl deaths. So babies under the age of one, and this will shock you as a soon-to-be daddy, that babies under the age of one, their deaths from fentanyl has gone up fourfold. And the same for kids five to 14. Babies. So yeah. maybe we need a dead on arrival for babies. Well, um, a lot of those are accidental deaths too. I was talking to Yeah, a, it has to be accidental, right? One one year old chooses to use fentanyl. Yeah, and 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 accidental to the point where of I've I've heard a lot of people talk about they accidentally grab a pill or a piece of a pillow is in the carpet or on the ground or on the bed or something. But even I was talking to Ed Byrne, who is San Diego as well. He's homeland. And um, he was saying there was a hotel where a baby was crawling on the carpet. And just like that, you know, because the residue from someone who had stayed in before yep. in the carpet. And you That's go, all it takes. Oh, my gosh. You know, so pretty. How do, how do we stop that? You know, Um and Ed Burns was on High Truth, so uh, our listeners can listen to his uh, podcast as well. Ed Burns is um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So Families Against Fentanyl is, is advocating for fentanyl to be labeled a weapon of mass destruction because that way we can go after the cartels and the Chinese who are bringing this stuff and poisoning and killing our children. What do you think of that? I think if it's not going to be done now, it'll be done when someone flies a drone with a pack of fentanyl over a crowd and it kills thousands of people. I think Ed Byrne and I were talking about that. It's just the sad thing is just like these fentanyl, they were just starting to see homicide investigations. It takes typically hundreds or thousands, thousands of the same thing happening for people to finally go, okay, you're right, this might be a problem. And it can be used as as a, a weapon of mass destruction. I think it, it is be. used right now. We have 200 deaths a day. If you're right. It's already killing masses. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess it'll take maybe something super mass like that, I guess I'm saying, for, for people to who are in that kind of authority to realize this is what it is um hopefully not i'm actually curious what are they is there any sort of things being proposed or how does that happen how do we make that so that's what families against fentanyl and jim rowell who has that organization is is hiring experts and investing in and there are more attorney generals across the country who agreed that um, fentanyl should be labeled a weapon of mass destruction, and that allows for more prosecution on the supply chain of bringing that in the country. Because right now, drug dealing uh, is a great business, right? So we kill a few people. Oh, well, um, it's still making a lot of money for people. Well, we got to change that. Um, and so I, I agree with families against fentanyl that we, you know, we have to do prevention like what you're doing and we need to do treatment for people who have addiction but there's a huge issue with supply and if we didn't have such a supply we wouldn't have so many people dying yeah i agree i agree that yeah in that case you know 
there's no good being done by that it being supplied illicitly. So, you know, it, I mean, I would argue that for all, pretty much every drug, really. But, yeah, you know, it's you're certainly right in that sense. I'm not sure how that all works, but if I need to sign up, sign something up, <laughs> you know, I'll put my name down as far as the, you know, that goes. So just because you mentioned you said I I, hear, I talk about weed a lot and what are what are your perspectives or what do when people ask you about that well okay I won't use fentanyl uh, but weed is okay or what do you think the prevention message should be with with that I think the I think you're right in the sense that what we were just saying it is a gateway drug it's I and people will want to cancel me you know young people for saying. I don't think any drug is good, including marijuana. I I think I think the answer is don't do anything. And I can actually say that one from experience because I tried it eventually in high school and college. And it made me paranoid. And um I think I actually did one time. I was in a situation where I tried it and I think there was something laced in there because I had like a horrible it was like tripping out. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't used other drugs. So it's like, Did you have psychosis. Did you have cannabis induced psychosis? So it was like, and I was not, I mean, it was like, a, I'll take, I'll try one hit. And next thing I know, I'm walking home, like in a, this panic. And then I'm in my dorm, like pacing back and forth. Right. And then I'm like closing my eyes and seeing like pictures and stuff like that in my mind. And so it was really, it was like paranoia slash hallucinogenic type things. I mean, I wasn't seeing things like open vision type thing, but all I knew is like, all right, that's horrible. I don't like this. And uh, the stuff's only gotten stronger since then. So my, my answer is you should do nothing. And, I, and on the back end of that, you should do nothing. And I'll go all the way down to nicotine and all these vapes. And we can talk about that too. Because being a slave to something, I don't know if that word's, you know, but that's what it feels like. Being chained to an addiction or a drug is a horrible feeling, especially when you feel like your mental health and your sanity is riding on that slavery, right? And like, if you broke that chain, you're giving up your mental health because you think weed or nicotine or whatever is what's holding those things together. It's a lie, right? That's deception. And there is freedom from those things. Unfortunately, young people think that that is what they need in order to be okay. And, and that's why I think a lot of these pill deaths are happening because they just want to be okay. They don't want to feel what they're feeling. They don't want to think the thoughts they're having. Um, Drugs are no drug is the answer to that question. You know, you're I'll validate you again, Dr. Uh, Bob DuPont, one of the leaders in our, our country on the issue of drugs and addiction. He used to be a drug czar at the White House. Um, he wrote a book called Chemical Slavery, and that's exactly right. Wow. Um, and we, um, we, we, there's science behind that, right? We learn really from the tobacco industry that if we get a kid to start smoking, you'll be a smoker for life and it'll be good for business. And so we know, this is, I, I joke um, with you, like your brain just finished growing because your brain is growing until you're 25 years old. 
physically. You're getting myelin. You're making, you know, um, neuronal pathways that end when you're, you know, around 25 years old in your mid-20s. So anything that you use before that age, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, anything that's addicting, is up to seven times higher chance of addiction than someone my age starts using that. Um, so your chances of addiction is high, higher um, at that age. And you have to protect it. You have one choice. You have one brain. You want it healthy. You want to be as tall as you can. You want to have your brain full of good pathways as much as you can. But, but you're right. When people have a hole in their heart, whatever it is, whether it's anxiety or pain or, you know, difficulties, they want to fill that hole and they need tools besides alcohol and drugs um, to mask that. Yeah, it's, it's not a solution. It's a temporary band-aid to a, a deeper issue that... Well said. Yeah, that I want to explore in my next film, which we're going to... So tell us about that. What is What are you working on? So I'm... After making Dead on Arrival and seeing all these kids making this horrible choice and decision, which you would think once they realize the risk, you would think, you know, they have to know that this is not... And so I'm going, why do they keep making this dumb decision? And... There has to be a root or, you know, a root for why that decision is being made. They don't just want to try a pill, you know, from a guy off of Snapchat. Why are they making that choice? And the common thread I hear for every story is they had some sort of anxiety or some sort of mental health, you know, issue that led them to reach out, you know, privately for this pill or whatever it is. So I just want to go deeper now into why that decision is happening. I'm not necessarily going to talk about drugs a whole lot. I'm going to tell a lot of my story and what I dealt with at that age, um, which resulted in me making a lot of my bad decisions. What's that? Sorry, my wife is here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. What are you, what they consume music-wise, what they're listening to, what they're seeing on social media, what they're filling their minds with, and how all of that correlates to their depressive or anxious state, which drives them to make these horrible decisions. And so I want to just cut deeper into the root of this thing. Um, because it may, if they don't use fentanyl, they're going to do something else dumb, you know? Right. They're right. trying to fix this problem. There was no one, right. you know, we're addressing that their decisions are not addressing like the root problem. And so I just want to go deeper into, into that. Great. There's a lot I've learned from my looking back at my childhood, a lot of personal accountability I didn't I didn't take at the time and no one was really pointing me to. Again, what I was listening to, what I was consuming, what I was watching, what I was filling my mind and my soul with that were actually changing my brain and resulting in me in this in these months. brain was growing. <laughs> yeah. And it was growing like you're saying. Yeah. Like you, I kind of like what you said about 25. I'm like, man, <laughs> and this is only the past like few years where I've had a big shift of right. how I take care of my mind and my soul. And, and, all, and I go, I hope I got enough good in there at the buzzer there. To, you That's know. right. I mean, you can adapt, but the neurons that you're given when you're born and, and that's it. You don't get new ones. I mean, you can fix pathways, 
but as far as a nucleus, you only get a set set amount. So you got to take yeah. care of them. And and you you have it's funny. My son when my kids have heard me say this to them a lot. And when so my son turned twenty five, I told for my kids I told them twenty seven because I wanted a few extra years. So twenty seven, he was like, yeah, I think I feel it stopping now. <laughs> but uh, what's and what's your long term goals? My long term goal is. Um, going back to the God thing, whatever, whatever he wants me to do with this gift, I do think my, my wife and other people have said that eventually this will become kind of the main thing that I do. And it's, I just, I want that if that's what it's supposed to be, I guess I'm, I'm, I spent a lot of time, like you mentioned earlier, like very entrepreneurial trying to like come up with my own ideas, my own businesses. I dabbled in so many different things and I've always come back to this. I've always come back to storytelling and wanting to make an impact and wanting to change hearts, change minds in a positive way and see people set free from addiction, set free from mental health, set free from all of the kind of darkness and things that we have to deal with in the world. And if I can use my gifts and talents to to aid in that, then I wow. think sounds pretty good to me. You know? Sounds good to me too. I want to say thank you to Ron, uh, Ron Cuff for your questions and the important work that you do in prevention. I'm definitely a big fan of Safe Launch, your youth prevention program, and have a great time meeting you on the airfield and touring your plane, the airplane that makes great prevention impact. And thank you, Dominique. I'm so proud of you. I'm so honored to have had this time with you. I want to bless you and your wife with um, a happy, healthy baby and parenthood. It's the best thing ever. The only thing better than being a parent is being a grandparent, which I am, so I could tell you that. And uh, you're an amazing artist who evokes emotion in your viewers. I'm really inspired and how you openly talk about God and your faith and bringing that into your work. So I want to bless you with continued success and positive impact in your work. And also may the memories of the children who have died be a blessing to the parents who braved reliving their pain for your movie so their kids, their other kids can be saved. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Lev, and bless you as well. This is so cool. I love... I love when I get to include that element because it's such a huge part of, of what I do and I would imagine what you do as well. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.